one. This is Masonic Muscle, where we explore the mysterious origins, history, traditions, and symbols of Freemasonry, while at the same time encouraging you, brethren, to increase your level of fitness one degree at a time, strengthening your body, mind, and soul, and getting an awesome mental, muscular, and spiritual pump. Because Freemasonry is a progressive science, and if you want to improve your health, you have to progressively increase the resistance to whatever it is you're doing. Today's guest is George Whitmore, past master of Chino Lodge, correct, uh, George? Yes. Yes, and he was also our a AGL for a period, uh, starting in 2014, and he was uh, AGL of District 8. He was in charge of, I believe, 12 lodges here in Southern California. Oh, Good morning, George. 50. How much? 50. I, 50. Is that correct? I was in charge of all of the lodges in uh, Riverside, San Bernardino, and uh, uh, Inyo County. So I had lodges from uh, Blythe up to Bishop. And so a lot of the, uh, almost all of the Inland Empire was mine. So I went as far south as as uh, southwest as like uh, Temecula and uh, that area and um, south down to, to Blythe and um, the high desert, Big Bear, out, up the interior to um, the lodges in uh, uh, by Bishop. So. And during the time when I, when I uh, first met you, it wasn't under the most positive conditions. Our lodge was going through uh, some upheavals. And so uh, the district inspector and the AGL had to get involved and begin to help us get back to health. And mm -hmm. so uh, that's when I finally paid attention. AGL, they kept mentioning AGL, AGL, assistant grand lecturer, you know, because as you're going through Freemasonry and you begin to focus on your lodge, you begin to focus on the administrative aspect, you get zoned in, you get honed in, and you don't really pay attention to AGL and all, you know, all this stuff. So that's when I finally paid attention. And then I finally met you uh, at our lodge because you went to a stated meeting because you wanted to check out things and see for yourself what, you know, what, what you're going to see. And so you had a lot of experience dealing with many, many different types of situations in lodges all over the place so that's why i wanted to get you on to the show today to begin to ask you and pick your brain a little bit about not only your experience but how you see freemasonry california freemasonry and where do you think it's going today well i look at the current political the happenings in our country and I see and moral happenings in our country and I see a a large decline in moral good moral behavior um as evidenced by Will Smith slapping uh the host of the Oscars like totally inappropriate behavior and I see the values that masonry espouses and i look at the 
the relevance of masonry in our in our values and what we teach. And I think that we are going to see a large resurgence in interest in our fraternity because of the uh, the longing of that people have for order, for honor, for honesty, for family values. And I, I, I firmly believe that we're going to have a big uh, resurgence in, in people um, coming to lodges. I've seen that in, uh, I'm inspector at the moment at the high desert, and we're getting a, a tremendous influx of young people. I mean, it's not unusual to get one or two applications, three or four in a state of meeting. Um, and they're all young, they're, they're in their 20s. And so it's very heartening to see what they're, why they're coming in and they're actively looking for the value systems that masonry has. So my opinion is we're going to be seeing this, this resurgence and I'm really excited about that. Now, when, when you say that you see a lot of young people coming to Freemasonry because, you know, in your estimation, they, they are looking for order, they are looking for stability, they are looking for a strong uh, example, right? Like mentorship. Yes. They're looking for a strong example of how to act, how to behave. Yes. Now, that will necessarily mean the honus is put on the lodge to make sure that they're acting that way and that they are practicing uh, these virtues, these morals, these principles that the degrees and the lectures and the charges espouse. So now the, it's a balancing act. And so we have a huge responsibility to begin to chip away and continue to chip away at our own rough aster, right? So that that's that, correct. That can uh, be present already. What are your, you know, how do you see the lodges, you know, acting right now? as far as that's concerned. Well, again, um, at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm as the inspector, I hear, I, I go to different lodges, not only the ones I have, but other ones in the area um, in my travels. And I'm seeing the, and listening to young people talk about the, the positive parts of masonry. And the, when I talk to the, as an example, we have a new guy that hasn't put in an application yet. He's been coming to all of our stated meeting dinners, activities that he can, he can for almost nine months. And he's anxious, but he's patient. He's seeing value in the fellowship. He's seeing value in just sitting and talking with the brothers. And I have new, I have fairly new officers in one of my lodges and they, uh, they're moving up through the chairs and they come and talk to me all the time about uh, to get guidance. You know, how would you handle this? How would you handle that? And as the, as the inspector um, and as a, a senior citizen, I've been around the block several times and I have the benefit of 
both my experience and my age acquired wisdom. And I learned that um, there's many ways to lead, but that leadership needs to be carefully done so that you're not being a dictator, but you're being a, a person that facilitates each Mason's success. So I try to sit in the background quietly, making sure everybody's successful. So I offer advice when asked, or if I determine that maybe the, the brother needs a little bit of a uh, some wise counsel in their ear, I will approach it that way with my brother. It, it has come to my attention that you might need a little bit of uh, wise counsel so that you can continue to be successful. And I've gotten, not to toot my own horn, but I've gotten a lot of guys just quietly to me saying they really like my leadership style and they find it very, very valuable. And they, they find that they're, uh, they're learning about the, our fraternity and how it works through my uh, mentorship that way. So I think with, and then I've also been on the Inspector Development Academy as the uh, chairman of that for years. And my philosophy on masonry has been imparted to most of the, the inspectors in our state. So when I, when I focus on this kind of leadership, I've been training leaders for 15 years on uh, and inspectors on how to, how to be an inspector, but also how to carry the, the Masonic flag of integrity, honesty, sincerity, and how important it is to, to do that. And it's not just in teaching, it is in living every, in everything you do. So, you know, it's, you're basically on stage as a Mason 24 seven. And if you're gonna be a Mason, you not need to live that philosophy. Now I've I've heard some aspects of those because you've had these uh, you you've shared these nuggets of wisdom with us at our lodge on several occasions, mm -hmm. but you have refined it definitely uh, since then. You have uh, brought more clarity to, to your message. I want to go back to something you said during that time, and that was you whisper wise counsel in someone's in someone's ear, and it, this is somewhat of a pet peeve of mine because there does come a point where you ask yourself, well, how many times do I have to whisper good counsel in the brother's ear? And then I started looking at the California Masonic code and our charges and everything and what it says and, and what recourse the lodge has members mm -hmm. have as to how to handle things. Once you have whispered good counsel in a brother's ear and he is not, listening anymore he is you can clearly see that he's not following anybody's direction so what i began to tell members and it's a shock to them because they don't want to hear this or maybe they didn't think about it is that this is why the cmc was written and this is why we have a recourse because once we've met all of our obligations all 
you know, what, so what is your take on that? Uh, what have been some of your experiences with that? Whispering good well, counsel. As an example, in, yeah. Um, I, during my tenure as an AGL, um, one of the lodges in my area, uh, I had heard uh, through um, the, the uh, executive council that this lodge has been in trouble for a long time and they wanted it fixed um, or closed. And that was pretty much my, my directive, fix it or close it. So I went because I don't, I don't do anything without doing my due diligence. I went and I sat in the lodge and I watched. And I will tell you that I saw examples of very, very appropriate Masonic behavior. Um, the officers were not qualified. I, I think there was two officers that knew what they, the, their ritual, the rest of them didn't have a clue. Um, their bookkeeping was uh, non-existent. Their uh, interpersonal relationships were shouting in anger. Um, and I tried whispering <laughs> good counsel. Yeah. Um, I talked to each person. Uh, number one, I, I, I believe that if there's a problem, you talk to somebody privately, never in public, because you don't need to embarrass anybody in any way. Whether they're doing things that uh, are inappropriate, it's I'm not going to do things that are inappropriate. So I, I talked to them. I whispered good counsel. Then I came back and I watched and nothing changed. So I talked to the lodge and I said, gentlemen, this is what I'm seeing. And I laid out the broad areas where I was seeing. And I said, this is not going to be tolerated as a lodge. You're not going to continue in your offices. You're not qualified. I set down a list of, I think it was eight or nine goals that they had to accomplish. Number one, they had to have a budget. Duh. Number two, officers <laughs> had to be qualified. Duh. And I went through the whole thing. And the brothers listened to me. I then said, I will give you as much support as you asked me for. And I will bring in help. I will bring in people. I will give you as much time of mine as you need. I'm going to assign an inspector just to your lodge to provide you with the support you need to accomplish these goals. You have uh, until this was early in the year, you have until I gave them a date and to accomplish this. And if not, my recommendation to the Grand Master will be that you, they, he revoke your charter. And I worked with them. I gave them the, the contacts for choices. I said, it's your responsibility to call them. I'm, I need to have you want to get this fixed more than I want you to get this fixed. And they didn't call anybody. My inspector was there. He talked to them, he encouraged them. And that inspector is now the AGL. So you know that it's quality guy that was there. And at the end of the year, I came in and I said, gentlemen, you have one month, you can't possibly get everything done. You've never asked me to come out and 
and uh, ascertain your your skills in ritual, let alone furnish me with any of the other things. So my recommendation is going to be to to the Grand Master uh, to revoke your charter, as I said. And they said, well, we're working on it. Okay. So I came back the next month and I had talked to the Grand Master and he said, well, it's uh, obvious that they didn't do anything. So he, he gave me the uh, uh, orders to pick up the charter. So I went to the meeting and I said, I'm here from the Grand Master and this is what's gonna happen. And the response was, you're kidding. <laughs> I said, no. Well, we didn't believe you would do this. So we really didn't take you seriously. And I said, well, you know, guys, you have, you know, my reputation that I say that I do. <laughs> I said, okay. I will give you all the support you ask for. You didn't ask for any. I said, you had to want it more than me. You didn't want it more than me. I said, you have to accomplish these goals. You did not accomplish any of the goals. So what do you think was going to happen? And they were absolutely flabbergasted when it happened, literally. So as far as getting back to your, your question about what do you do after you whisper good counsel? My opinion is these are these are grown-up adults. If you if you lay out according to the CMC what the problem is and you ask to have it fixed and they refuse, that's the choice that they're making. You whisper good counsel again. As as our uh, being a Christian, as our Lord Jesus Christ said, you know, turn the other cheek. Well, he furnished us with four. Could only turn, you know, <laughs> there was a reason he said that. So once you've gone through four, four cheeks, then you're done. And you suffer the consequences of your behavior. Um, if I didn't, I wouldn't be practicing good masonry. Because I swore an oath to uphold the, all the laws, rules, and regulations of the Grand Lodge. And uh, the, so if I'm not doing what I'm, what's listed in the CMC, I am not being a good Mason. And so my reputation is that I say that I do. I don't fool around. I don't like drama. I don't like anything that interferes with success. So you want to be successful, follow the rules. Don't want to be successful, don't follow the rules. It's your choice. Now, George, you mentioned that you you worked very hard with that with that uh, lodge and you offered every single opportunity to help them have success and they did and, and the, the charter had including to be bringing in a grand master a past grand master to, to talk with them and motivate them yeah 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 and that's that's a, that's a bad sign right there and 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 so in your years george um because we hear rumors in your years as agl 
what year was the year that you guys pulled the most charters? I mean, the Grand Lodge had to pull charters and you guys were like, holy crap, you know, this is, this is a trend and we need to stop it. Well, number one, why, why would Grand Lodge want to have a charter pulled? They don't. Yeah, they don't. They don't. I mean, we're losing lodges. Yeah. What is our purpose in Masons? To make Masons. To make Masons. Where do you make Masons? In lodges. Why would Grand Lodge want to reduce that opportunity? Right. They don't. Some of the brothers said to me, well, you only want the lodge's money. The Grand Lodge, when they close the lodge, takes that money and puts it in a, a separate account, earning interest, to develop lodges in that area. So if in the area where it was closed, if a group of brothers want to establish a new lodge, there's funds there for them. So that fund doesn't just go to the general, uh, the general uh, treasury. So it's earmarked. It's earmarked for that area to build a lodge. So they're not keeping the money to, for their aggrandizement. They're using that money specifically to set aside money to develop more lodges. They don't want to close lodges. They don't want to do that. It's contraproductive to masonry to close lodges. So, you know, the, what happens is guys do things for whatever reason without caring about the consequences, I guess. Um, I've known of three or four lodges that were closed. Several of them was financial improprieties. Um, You know, brothers stealing money. Brothers spending money without following Grand Lodge's set guidelines. And so, you know, when you divert thousands and thousands of dollars, um, you're going to get caught. Um, so that, I mean, that's a lot of more insight than, than, uh, I've had, I've gotten from anybody, um, not that they're holding it a secret, but you know, you, you don't ask you, you don't get told, uh, but going back to my question, you, you know, every year, like when I would go to grand lodge, um, a communication, we'd hear how many lodges, you know, were closed their, their charters mm-hmm. had to be pulled. What, what year was the most where you got, it was an eye opener to you. I don't remember. Yeah. Cause it, it's not that many, I right. I mean, not that many get their charters pulled. No, every year. no, no, they don't. Okay. So that, so that's, that's heartening. <laughs> that's that yeah, because, because people will be people, guys are guys. They begin to act up. They begin to, you know, let their, uh, their own personal agendas, uh, begin to override the lodges agenda of making masons mm-hmm. of uh, looking for good men and trying to make them better and then following what the charter says right to initiate pass and raise all good men and true who are are worthy and who may apply for the purpose so something like that to hear that not too many charters are pulled uh, lodges closed here and there because they just did, couldn't go on I- any any longer, and so they surrender their charter. That's that's the difference. There's a big difference there. Well, sometimes it's guys. We have um, we have found 
in our audits that your your uh, in flagrant violation of the law. So there's two options. We can confiscate your charter or you can surrender it, which looks better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, um, George, when, um, when you came to our lodge, I think it was the second or third time our, our lodge was beginning to, uh, you know, turn, turn around for the better. Mm -hmm. You gave us, <clears throat> you gave us a, uh, you told the story of that when you became master, you had, you developed this uh, lecture series of how King Solomon's temple was built mm -hmm. and you, and you delivered it during stated meetings when you were in the East. And that uh, I asked you, Hey, you know what, how many people would show up? Oh, it was a packed house. You said it was, you know, it was, I think, I don't know how many parts uh, it was, but uh, you said it was, uh, you know, well-received. So this leads me to believe that you've, you've had, many hours to be able to contemplate the origins of Freemasonry and, and have you developed your own unique theory as to you know where you think Freemasonry could have possibly come from in all these years of uh, serving the craft? Uh, yes, I guess. Um, I've done quite a bit of research uh, but if you look at the you look at how the 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 lodges started and developed where uh, it was a guild and, and uh, a vocation. And it was a dangerous vocation. So how do you get people to do dangerous jobs? You have to have a little extra incentive. Yeah. Um, so that extra incentive was, if you're injured, we're going to take care of you. If you're killed on the job, we're going to take care of your family. Well, I don't know about you, but as a family man, um, when I was looking for jobs, I wanted to make sure that my family was taken care of, who had good health coverage, who had good, uh, you know, was it affordable? So I've made decisions for my career based on protecting my family and having my family uh, be able to grow and prosper. That's a value. The other thing that's about that we learn from our history is the the Masons valued their members, and the community had valued their members because if you think back to the times, all of the people were serfs in. And serf is another name for slave. We were all slaves owned by the aristocracy, except for Masons who needed to be freed in order to travel because it took so much time to train somebody to do the job. And the aristocracy realized that you needed to free these people. Hence our name, Freemasons. Again, it's a value. We provided a value service. And that elevated us in a way that was different from everybody else. There isn't any free plumbers back then or free uh, horseshoers, free 
carpenters. The only ones that came, became free were the masons. So looking at that value system that we established, it gradually grew and refined itself. Um, and then as, as we started that turn from um, operative to speculative, it was the value system again that brought people into our organization. And those values have continued from the beginning to today in the development of our country at the beginning of our country. As you well know, most of the, the guys that wrote the rules for our country were Masons. Um, and that, that value system um, really came from uh, the, the beginning of uh, where we started taking care of each other. And that was a value and a, a, a belief. So I think that we've stayed with those values because they're, they're something to A, fight for and B, uh, to live by. And that, that rings in us as human beings. So your, your, um, your theory as to the origins of Freemasonry is tied to the guild uh, theory and you know you're evolving it from from there as information comes out you know this, this is the most solid information we have and we can't go any further back uh than that is is that how you uh see that particular well, again, point you, you have, i look at i mean we've been building for uh as our lectures say you know from the, putting trees up and covering them I, I think that if you look at the uh, you, you look at religion as it's developed, and the religion is basically the value system of people, um, and it's been evolving for a long time, which is why we have different religions and different subgroups in those religions. Um, because everybody is refining how they believe and what they believe. Um, and then you look at uh, our fraternity has developed its, its beliefs and rule systems uh, as, as things have changed and we've grown and learned uh, through experience. We've refined our our beliefs and our system. So I really don't, I mean, I look at the, the legends from like King Solomon's time. I think that those were set up to be examples of, um, of the, the value systems that we eventually got. I don't necessarily have a strong belief that that actually happened. I think it was, uh, it's part of the Masonic tradition. As we say, Masonic tradition informs us. Now, some of the events happened. 
King Solomon's temple was built. Was there actually a Hiram Abiff? I'm not sure. There was a Josephus, a very famous Jewish historian. He did write a lot. He did chronicle the times. But I'm not sure that there was actually all of the things that, that our degrees say. Um, I think that some of that was done to give us the a framework for why we're doing what we're doing. And what you're saying uh, resonates with a new book. Uh, well, it's not so new. It came out on the 300th anniversary of Freemasonry, uh, exploring early Grand Lodge, I think, uh, Freemasonry. And it was uh, a number of articles that, that were coming out of the Philalethe Society uh, with Sean Ayer and, 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 you know, these scholars, Masonic scholars. And one of the articles, it said that we're going to have to revisit the Masonic legends, especially in the uh, Anderson's constitutions, because just because a lot of it sounds outrageous doesn't mean that it wasn't put there for a very specific reason. Their legends and their, their legends and their mythological, I forgot how they, they framed it, but they put it there because that's the way they understood the world during that time. And that's the uh, information and stories that were going around during, especially in a Christian society. So they, mm -hmm. they were the, the, the literate side of, of uh, society were their books and, and articles circulating that were helping them to understand the world in their time. And right. so, you know, they used allegory, they used symbols. So we have to understand, like we have to delve deeper into that because it looks fanciful when you first read Anderson's constitution and you read the history since Adam mm -hmm. and Eve, you know, and then the flood and then all these great works that were done. But it kind of goes along with what you just said right now that, yeah, it, it might have been legend or, you know, Masonic tradition, but that doesn't mean that it's not as valid as like hard historical facts. It's, they go hand in hand. If you look at, if you look at the Bible, um, the Jesus told stories to teach a lesson and those stories uh, may not have specifically happened, but he was trying to use the, the medium of storytelling to get his, the people that were listening to understand the concepts that he was teaching. Yeah, the parables that he taught. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the prodigal son parable that teaches you a value did it actually happen i'm sure it did some way i mean in in all of our human history there has to be two kids one of them left came back i mean you know it it, it happened i i don't so does it mean that jesus actually saw that probably not but it was still there now, I want to get into, or yeah, I want to get into your years as AGL. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to know, you know, what was your experience like being our AGL? Because I was one of the lodges. I was, I'm a member of one of the lodges that you were in charge of uh, for the years that you served. And did this change your perspective at all about the craft and how we should be practicing it? 
Yes, it did. Um, so? Number one, okay. I really enjoyed being AGL. Um, I was very humbled when I was asked to interview for the position, as in me, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and yeah, now I, I have several degrees. I have two master's degrees. Um, I have been an administrator uh, with schools and the interview that I had was the hardest interview I've ever had in my life. It was about 45 minutes to an hour. And it was a tough interview. And then I was called and said, congratulations, you have been chosen. Um, again, part of that humbleness is I didn't think I had I was qualified because, I mean, that's a really big job. Um, so when I do jobs, I'm all in or I don't do it. And so I threw everything I had at the job and um, I worked very hard to, to do all of the, the, the parts of it. The hardest parts to me are always when you find dissension how do you ease that? The other part that I think is, was really important for me and uh, is my wife was very, very, very bright and she gave, would give me pearls of wisdom. One of them was whenever you're, there's a problem, shut up and listen. <laughs> so... I took that to heart and so I would listen to the to what's going on and I would listen to people and then I focused on how to solve the problem by asking them questions about okay here's here's what I'm hearing here's the problem that I'm seeing can you explain to me why this is occurring under the umbrella of who best can work and best agree. And I would bring parts of our, our obligations and, and uh, oaths in that were relevant. And it's really hard to continue your stance if you're going 180 degrees away from what you promised in your oath to God. So Oftentimes, just by knowing our ritual well, I was able to bring about a reformation. The other part that's, that I, I practice as an AGL is I identify the problem to the leaders of the lodge. It's, I don't expect to see a whole bunch of mini Georges running around out there. Everybody has their own way of solving a problem. If I tell you this is what goal I'm looking for and you get there, I'm not really going to tell you to do it my way because my way may not be the, the right way for you. So as a leader, you need to understand that, that people are going to solve problems the way they've learned 
in the way they practice. You can give them some parameters, but it's best if they solve it. And one of the reasons is if you tell them specifically how you want them to do it and it fails, then you are ultimately responsible for that failure because they didn't buy into it. If they design the problem, the, the solution, they have skin in the game and they're willing to make sure that their way to solve it succeeds. And then you've made a stronger leader because they're able to think for themselves and figure out how to uh, solve the problem. Um, I, I witnessed many different ways of, of running lodges when I was AGL. I witnessed many different inspectors and I thought that I was a really good inspector and I started watching some of the other guys being doing their inspecting and I thought, wow, I got a lot to learn. Yeah. And so um, that was a humbling experience too uh, because again, it, it showed me that we all can learn, we all can grow. And I grew a lot as an inspector watching the other inspectors when I was AGL. The other part of being an AGL that I really enjoyed was the uh, being privy to the another level of seeing the Grand Lodge of California work. Um, all the stuff going on in the background to make everybody else successful, which I've brought down to the local level as currently I'm an inspector, is our job as leaders is to ensure success for the lodges. Mm. It's not to point out, hey, look at me, I'm George Whitmore, I'm the inspector, whoa. No, I'm supposed to be quietly in the background, assuring success, working to have things work, um, not pointing at all the fingers at me as a as the best guy, because I'm not. I'm just a, a worker bee working for success. And I think if you look at the at how Grand Lodge is structured, that's pretty much true all the way up. Um, there are some guys who, because we're human, they are there for the glory. But that's going to happen in any job. And um, I will tell you, though, the first time I sat on the stage as an EGL at Grand Lodge, uh, my head swelled up like crazy. It was a <laughs> holy crap, this is neat. Uh, it was totally an exciting thing. And part of my research, I found that um, I'm the first guy in California to join a lodge in a wheelchair, go through all the chairs, become a master. I'm the only guy in a wheelchair in California or as far as I can tell anywhere else that has become uh, uh, an inspector and then an AGL. So I've done a lot of uh, groundbreaking as a handicapped person. And that's the, the thing I also wanna talk about is I was offered these opportunities based upon my skill 
in ritual. My uh, intelligence, you have to be smart to do this job. Um, and for the first time in doing something in my, my life, I didn't feel that I was discriminated against because I had a disability. Masonry really, at this point in time, is really out, in Cal especially in California, is out in front of the world in we accept people of all abilities, of all colors, of all preferences, and that, that we live it. We really do. Um, we had a brother uh, in a wheelchair years and years and years ago, and it was a problem for some brothers. They didn't, they didn't want to uh, give them an application. And then when they did, there was discussion again as to how are we supposed to uh, perform, you know, so he was given an application and it was voted on and, and it was agreed upon. So initiation date was issued, but then they're wondering, wait, how are we? So that there was dissent and there were still people fighting against it. Did you experience the same thing when you applied to your lodge or it was, they were immediately accepted? No, um, no, I didn't, I didn't pick up on any of that. The, uh, the inspector at the time was Jack Rose. Oh yeah. And Jack worked with the lodge to um, figure out how to adapt things for me. Oh, so that was him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then during the time I was AGL, I was, I was giving, uh, I was assigned by the Grand Master uh, Charbonia, the responsibility of sharing uh, adaptive techniques for uh, the ritual to anybody in the state that needed that, that guidance. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, you know, and I've talked to, I've talked to lodges about how to adapt degrees for a disability. And they say, well, how do they do the step if they can't move their feet? I said, where were you made a mason? Your heart. Okay. My brain knows what the step is. It tells my feet to move. They don't do it. Does that mean I can't be a mason? Really? All right. I will tell you that one of the guys who is in our upcoming uh, ritual contest is fully confined to a wheelchair, has very little body movement available to him, and is the last time he competed, he had, uh, he nailed every single word made not one word error um, above all of the other contestants. He's competing again. And um, the one concern that they have is he can't, you're judged on like the, the, the steps and signs. Right. As, right. And he can't do that. He has um, one of the officers step beside him and, and demonstrate that. So they're worried about whether that'll take points off, but he's so strong in the verbal part 
that they don't think that's going to matter. They think he's going to. Yeah, yeah he's, so, he's in Excel. He's yeah, in Excel. So, yeah. Go ahead. It's a, I, I think that our, our fraternity has not discriminated against me at all. In fact, I think they have uh, tried really hard to uh, let me reach whatever level of, of skill that I'm able to personally. And it's understandable that once you become AGI, once you become an inspector, I mean, once you, be, you start sitting in a chair, your perspective of Freemasonry begins to change, let alone sitting in the East and then mm -hmm. an inspector and now an AGL. Of course, your perspective is going to change, but I wanted to hear it from you. You know, what, how exactly did it change? Did it change for the better? It sounds like it. You had a very positive experience yeah we're gonna we're gonna experience the, the negative because we're an organization of people so of course we're gonna have right. our knuckleheads and we're gonna have you know lodges that just have no will and no drive to exceed you know and 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 meet the standard uh, a lot of people i don't know how they come to this conclusion and and maybe it's just me but they don't believe that freemasonry sets high standards and and i'm like what are you talking about all every single standard that Freemasonry has placed before us is high. And it's up to us to, to try and, and meet that standard and continue to work from that standard. And, and so when you have a group of members that, that are helping to run that lodge, you can tell where their standards are by how the lodge is functioning. <laughs> and that's if right. they don't have very high standards, then that's why the lodge is functioning uh, that way. Um, One of the were, things what, that I teach... Yes, sir. As an, it's uh, when I was when I teach classes for the Inspector Development Academy, is you have to have a good idea of each person's skill level because some of us are excellent ritualists, some of us are not. Some of us will never be excellent ritualists. Some of the leaders are excellent administrators, mm. moderately good ritualists. Some are excellent ritualists and terrible leaders. So you, you need to know what their skills are and then their motivation. As an example, um, one of the guys that was, I worked with, I uh, looked at his skills and thought, you know, this guy could be a superb ritualist. And so when I was working with him, I didn't pass him on the qualifications until he hit a really good level of, of, of ritual skill because I knew he could get it. Other guys, I have guy in the, in the uh, daylight lodge and he's 80 something. He's our, our senior steward. Now the daylight lodge doesn't do degrees. Right. Uh, the guy has been in the lodge as junior steward for 15 or 20 years. He still can't carry the rod correctly. <laughs> he still can't do the first degree <laughs> sign. He kind of combines all three signs into one move. <laughs> I show okay. it to him. He does it exactly right. Right after I show it to him, 10 minutes later, it's gone. All right. However, his attendance is better than anybody else's. Yeah. He's committed to being there and being a support and we give him a purpose. So am I going to not qualify him to be the senior steward? No, 
He's doing the absolute best that he is able to. And that's what I go for is give me your best, whatever that is. If it's at this level of, of performance, great. If it's at this level of performance, great. As long as you're giving me your all, I'm. what else can I ask? So my, my, I, I look at and I, I do evaluate people on their skills. So I'm judging. But I also understand that I can do that pretty well at this point in my life. And so I'm confident on how I do that judging that I'm not uh, being prejudiced in any way because again, I don't have to, I don't have to like everybody. I have to work with everybody. And I should not let my personal feelings towards somebody ever interfere with my just and fair uh, observation of their abilities and their qualifications. Speaking of uh, rituals and degrees and qualifications, which which one of the third uh, three degrees, without going into any detail, which one of which one of the third degrees is your favorite? Uh, the, the staircase lecture. Oh, you like that lecture. So it's not necessarily the degree. You like the, the lecture. I like the whole degree, actually. You like the whole but degree? I, my favorite thing to do as, a, as an officer is to do senior deacon in the second degree. I just love that so much. Yeah. And um, my first time uh, when I was a senior deacon, my uh, inspector at the Master Mason School, where you get your officers to perform in front of the grand lecturer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going down to answer the knock at the door of the preparation room, first degree. Um, and when I do that, I have my rod in my right hand and I drive the wheelchair with my left, which isn't as adept at driving as my right. So I get all the way down to the door and I stop I ground my rod and I go to knock and my wife had got me a new suit for this. So it hadn't been tailored yet, but I put it on. And as I'm reaching for the door to knock, my, my jacket sleeve catches the joystick on the wheelchair and full throttle right into, I do a face plant into the door. <laughs> Right, and it stunned me. <laughs> yeah. It stunned me. So I thought, well, damn, I've got to give two more really manly knocks to make <laughs> I broke my hand. <laughs> yeah, it got a chuckle from everybody. Um, but you know, uh, I lived through it, and uh, I did a really good job at the um, doing that degree. So, but it was funny. I, I got to tell you, it was funny. So the second degree is, is your, is your favorite My degree favorite, of, yeah. of the three. And, you know, you, 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 you mentioned several times in this whole conversation here, uh, the research in, in your research and your research and your research, mm -hmm. which, which brethren, it doesn't matter if you're a brother and you're an officer or you're not, or you're a side learner, we, we should be studying. We should be researching our craft, everything about it. Uh, mm -hmm. And even, even things connected to it. So we should be 
researching. So in your research, obviously we become, we come upon conspiracy theories of uh, the oh, yeah. craft that include the craft. Which one of those conspiracy theories, George, really like intrigues you? Which one of them intrigues you and you say, huh, you know, maybe there is something to it. And, and, it, and it has helped shape your, some of your conception of Freemasonry. I think the, the idea that there is a group of people that are really in charge of the world like the Illuminati thing. Okay. One part of me says, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. But I look at economics nowadays and the uber rich and how they influence things that are happening in our country. Um, and and in, in other countries, even in Russia, there are um, uber rich uh, business owners that are telling Putin, you know, you're not going to continue to do some of the things you're doing. And he's listening because they have a lot of power. All the oligarchs over there. Yeah. 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 All the oligarchs. So is it possible that there is a worldwide conspiracy to keep the uber rich up there and running things, you know, I don't know, but it's it's intriguing, and, and I, I I've spent a lot of time looking at that sort of thing. So yeah, is is there things that that intrigue me? I, I think so. There has to be some reason why the Illuminati started, whether they were real at the time or not, or the conspiracy of it, but. Yeah, things like that are interesting. And then yeah. you look at the, the, some of the stuff in the Dan Brown novels and, and uh, that, that's also fascinating is how much stuff went around in the background in, in uh, some of the stuff that, uh, that they pointed out. Were you, were you aware or are you aware there was an article that came out like in 2010? It was, um, it was a uh, research paper. I think it was uh, from Sweden or, or Norway or something. Some scientists, what they did was they uh, they did a, a, an analysis or I forgot what it was. But anyways, they through their mathematics and through their education, they applied that knowledge to corporations. And so they, they got in a bunch of corporations and then they, they began to research like, well, who owns them? And then who owns them? And then who owns them? And it ended up being that like, very few like big corporations like four or five own like all these other ones mm -hmm. and so right away you know when it came out um the conspiracy theories were like what did i tell you what have we been telling you this is yeah. how the world works you know these yes. giant hiding behind all this well there was so much pressure put on those scientists that they had to retract like their own research and their own findings, like what they, and, and they were like, uh, well, what we meant to say, you know, they had to do some kind of dancing and political correct massaging of it, but, but it was too late. The information is out there. I think you can find it. 
and and they nailed it down and even to the names of the corporations and so from there you just have to figure out okay who are the names behind like the people behind the name of the corporation and then you can find who these mega rich like what you're talking about uber rich people so that, that's a that's like a pretty prevalent one within uh, masonic circles you know these conspiracy theories that mm-hmm. that uh well is is there sinister dark forces or then that might even be sinister they might just be super uber rich people that have nothing better to do than than have a bunch of money and let's do this now and let's do that now uh george this was and what i thought it would be this conversation before we close out uh what positive message what what message do you have that you want to share with the brethren before we close out I want to share that our fraternity is strong. Our fraternity is moving forward. And the success of our fraternity relies greatly on each one of us practicing out of the lodge, those great moral duties that are inculcated in it. And people will know that we are Masons by our actions. Before I uh, close out, I wanna, first of all, acknowledge you, uh, George. I wanna acknowledge your service, your years of service to the craft, all the dedication research that you have done, uh, the times that you helped us, which were many, you know, getting on a phone call and talking to you and, uh, you, you know, uh, any, any one of us and uh, going through what you, you've gone through with the uh, physical challenges you have, it did not matter. You continue to go forward, setting a definite, you know, example, strong example being this being Masonic muscle, where I encourage brethren really during the pandemic you know hey you know get out there and and do your part get healthy you know eat right exercise get sun get plenty of air get plenty of water but when you're faced with physical challenges like that a lot of a lot of times people just want to uh you know get depressed and and take the negative side but that's not what you did you you took the completely uh, other side on the black and white checkered floor you chose to you know go on the white checkered floor and continue to go on that white checkered floor so I want to acknowledge you and thank you for, for that, for uh, also being a beacon of light during the time that our lodge needed, that I needed, uh, giving us your words of wisdom, cracking us on the head, Masonically cracking us on the head. We, you know, I saw it and I understood what you were, you know, what you were telling us and, uh, you know, man up, do what you got to do. You guys know what it is. And why are you even letting this happen? You know, this is not even, why am I even here? You know, just, geez, just fix it. And, you know, let me have it. Let me enjoy my steak dinner. And so uh, I want to, again, you know, I acknowledge you for all of that. I acknowledge you and thank you for coming on the show. I hope that you come on uh, again with us and share your progress here with uh, being district inspector again and helping more Masons get exposed to your positive message, to your strong work ethic, to your wealth of knowledge, to your wealth of 
of institutional knowledge that we all need because without that, everything begins to crumble really quick. So thank you, George. And, you know, in the words of your, of your wife, shut up and listen. Be That's a it. good listener, right? Yeah, <laughs> she was so right. <laughs> and she still continues to be right. All right, guys, this is Masonic Muscle, and this has been another exercise in critical thinking and speculation, challenging you all to question everything. Stay strong. Take care of your health. Eat well. Exercise. Spend time with your family, friends, relatives, and neighbors. Stick together. Stay united. And remember, brethren, if you do not, as a Mason, contribute to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, you may be deemed a drone in, a, in the hive of nature a useless member of society and unworthy of our protection as a Mason. Peace out.